Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Promo Noise podcast and video interview. I have a dynamic, a special, an intriguing, a marvelous guest for you today. Her name is Sabrina Harding. She's a friend of mine. I've known her for a long time in the promotional products advertising industry. She's been with several companies, some unbelievable companies. In fact, some of Canada's biggest companies has tremendous, tremendous experience when it comes to branding. Sabrina's been a branding manager, a branding specialist, a licensing manager. She's got uh, experience when it comes to sourcing products. Uh, I even dug deep into your repertoire, Sabrina, to discover <laughs> that at one point in your past, you were a coach as well. So you've got yeah. sales coaching experience too. You're a woman of many talents. And I'm going to turn the mic over to you in just a second. But before I do, I want to explain to everybody the purpose of today's podcast, the purpose of today's video interview. And the purpose is that what we'd like to accomplish is that you are an expert when it comes to corporate programs. You've been doing this for well over a decade, tons of experience. And as I used to travel North America incessantly, there were two questions that used to come up again and again and again. And they're both tied for number one, in my opinion. One of those questions was, Alex, do you know any salespeople that need a job? <laughs> that, that always came up. And invariably, the very next question was, Alex, what can you tell me about corporate programs? Given the tens of thousands of distributors that, across, that, that exist across North America, so few of them have experience when it comes to corporate programs. And so everybody is intrigued about this part of the business. They see it and they feel it intuitively that this is something they need to get into or investigate at the very least. And so I have a bona fide expert to talk to today. And for those people that are asking those questions, Alex, what can you tell me about corporate programs? I have somebody who's going to be able to answer lots of questions, shed lots of light so that you listening to this will be able to determine, hey, this is something I want to continue to pursue. This is an idea that I really, really like. Or alternative, alternatively say, you know what? I'm cool with the business I'm doing right now. Doesn't sound like corporate programs are for me. <laughs> So Sabrina Harding, welcome to the Promo Noise podcast. I'm thrilled to have you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about, you know, something that's been my passion for over a decade. It's unbelievable how I got involved in the promo world. And I'm so happy that I did. You know, it's one of those things as a young kid, I've always loved products. And it just so happened, the natural progression and change of my life has landed me here. And, you know, it started, as we said, like over a decade ago is when I started working with you, you know, at the <laughs> company, which is absolutely crazy that we're all still here. Doing yeah, what we absolutely. Love. Absolutely. Talk, talk me through that HBG, uh, sorry, H, HBC. That's yeah. what it is. I used to work for HBG, but talk <laughs> me through HBC, which for those that don't know is one of Canada's oldest companies, right? hundred percent it is. Uh, granted, now they're kind of owned by Americans, but you know what? It's okay. I started there. You know, I, as I said, I've loved products my whole entire life. My grandmother, if I listened to her from day one, I would have been in here in the industry a lot longer or a lot sooner. <laughs> okay. I got in and working on the corporate and Olympic sales team and it was sourcing for all the Olympics. So I kind of got in the tail end of Torino, but I started with Beijing and then Vancouver and then sourcing for all the licensees, um, branded products. And that was kind of like my first taste of um, promo. 
But at the mm-hmm. same time, we were managing their programs. And that was also like my first taste in programs. And I got to do it from a different perspective because it was a large retailer working in the promotional space. So a lot of my training and understanding, it has a retail flair, a retail eye versus straight um, promotional products. Yes. So I have a blend of the two worlds, which is absolutely amazing. Oh, you have so much experience there. It's it's incredible. And what struck me the most when I first met you over at HBC is the professionalization of what you were doing over there. You and your team were awesome. You were like cutting edge product sourcers. You had a system. You had uh, creative genius behind you and, and, and you indeed. And my friend Jen Viveros was there as well, right, yeah. with you and, and, and another creative person and a, and a person I really re- admire and respect. And I learned learned so much off of the two of you, off of the people that worked there. And so I want to I want to be able to share what you learned there and how you brought that into corporate programs. So before we go there, can you explain to everybody what is a corporate program as opposed to like promotional products business? There seems to be a distinction there. What is a corporate program, yeah. Sabrina? So the distinction is basically a corporate program is that uh, in, in essence, stocked merchandise for a particular client mm-hmm. so usually it's a larger client who wants to be uh, wants the ability to purchase one of something from a selected assortment so let's say me as a merchandiser i'm going to work with a vendor and say hey i want this water bottle or tumbler what's the minimum for me to purchase that they'll say 74 i'll have that 70 74 on the shelf where my client can go in and say i want one of that Please ship it, you know, to arrive next day or if they're shipping like three days or whatever it is. So it allows the client uh, the opportunity to purchase onesies of items that you have an inventory of. So if you have 10 items, they can purchase one of all of those items. But it gives them the ability to not break the bank per se versus Mm -hmm. them planning out for a large event where they need thousands of something and they want to drop ship to a location, this allows them to have one of something. So a new um, new employee hire, they want to give them a new little kit. They want to give them a notebook, a water bottle, a pen, and they'll say, here you go. And they can pull that off from their stock inventory to arrive in a nice pretty package, let's say. I see. Okay. So let's delve a little deeper into that. And let's talk about the type of company that decides to initiate a corporate program. So it seems to me then that anyone who initiates a corporate program already believes in branding, right? They're doing it through promotional products. And so they understand, ah, we're going to be using these several times throughout the year. This is part of our program. This is part of our, uh, you know, mandate experience. Like we use these. So they want to use them in more specific ways then they want to be able to pull onesies for training like you said they want to be able to pull uh, multiple items for an event that they have going on they realize throughout the year they're going to be using a variety of promotional products and promotional apparel i'm guessing yes but at the same time sometimes they don't even realize that they need that because in some cases they've hired a company a promotional or distributor to come on board because they bought an inventory and they've been managing themselves from like a little shop in their you know, their office, they're pulling their inventory and realizing that is not truly effective uh, and a great way to use someone's time. So they then look to the distributor to say, you know what, it makes sense for you guys. This is your specialty. You can manage that. And then they'll come and you know, give us, give someone essentially the program for them to manage to make it more efficient for them. 
So that's okay. usually why someone decides to go with a distributor for efficiency. Okay, I understand now. And so this now brings us full circle to where you started at HBC. You, what struck me the most, as I just mentioned, was the professionalization. So in that in that job function, you were choosing products for the Olympics, presumably for teams. Were you choosing them for teams? Team Canada, team. It could be, and it could be a variety of different things. Usually, it okay. was um, Olympic sponsors who wanted could be branded products for their teams to wear at events. Okay. Okay. Um, so it could be like a newscast, you know, a broadcaster who wanted their on-air personalities to wear branded merchandise. They could come to us. I see. Um, if someone wanted, I think it was like the COC logo, so the Canadian Olympic Committee logo on their product, they had to come to, you know, HBC back then. So there's all these little nuances, but if they, you know, wanted any their logo basically if they were like a licensee or a sponsor. Hey, come to us and we'll get it done for you. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, how does one initiate a corporate program? How do you start the ball rolling? Do you do it with an existing customer? Hey, I think it's time you think about having a corporate program, or do you cherry pick and see different companies that already have corporate programs and attempt to bid on what I would assume would be an RFP uh, request for proposal or something? How does that work? How do you how do you start a corporate program? How do you get someone interested in one or even land one? I think you have to have a good salesperson. So both okay. those examples that you just, just uh, talked about are both great. So in the first instance, if someone doesn't have a corporate program, as a salesperson, and if you're constantly doing orders for them and you're realizing, okay, I'm doing the same thing month after month, and it could be several different items that are possibly the same thing, 10, 20 items, if they're constantly ordering, that salesperson, if they're good, they're going to realize this is not a good use of my time. This makes sense for them to have it in a stock program so that mm. it's always readily available for them to keep turning and going uh, and selling, right? So that salesperson has to, and you know, they bring that conversation up and they have to have an honest conversation with their client. Sometimes clients are like, no, I'm good. Otherwise, other times they're like, oh my God, didn't think about it like that. I can't believe I've been doing this for, you know, so many years. This makes sense. Let's talk about this. And they'll talk about it and see if it, if it actually truly makes sense. On the flip I side- see. A large organization is already out there with a distributor doing their business and their, the agreement has come up for renewal. So they all, the client has an option of renewing it with their current partner or sending it out to tender to an RFP. And in that case, it allows distributors, if it goes out to RFP, to bid on the business. And, you know, it could be an RFP of a couple pages. It could be an RFP of like hundreds of pages and it gives you Mm. everything from the suit. Yeah. From everything to the kitchen sink, like it's insane how in depth they go. But someone who's looking to change is going through all the little, I guess, pain points that they've had with somebody else before, hoping mm-hmm. that they can correct that moving forward or build a build upon, you know, better relationship moving forward. Um, okay. And then they'll select the partner that way. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I see sort of a divergent path. And on on one hand, you've got a company you're already doing business with, and you suggest, hey, I think I could create some efficiencies for you here. I think I could make life simpler for you, and I think I could make it simpler for me, and we could remove friction points, and potentially we could actually economize based on the way that we're going to run this program. So that's one way, right? So you actually convince existing customers to do it. And then you mentioned the other end of the spectrum where you've got 
companies that are professional at branding, they use promotional products in their mix, they have corporate programs, um, they're already registered with a distributor, and these programs must be contractual. So they must be a year or two years or three years. And you're you're saying, yes, so at some point when a contract is about to expire, a variety of distributors will bid on that contract. And then if I understand correctly, you're saying, well, some of the RFPs can be 10 pages or a few pages and others can be hundreds of pages. You must have experience in small and large, right? Like those, those RFPs that are hundreds of pages. Yeah, they, okay. some, they can be intense because, okay. again, they ask you everything. So walk me through the process of one of these 100-page RFPs. Where does one start? Like, do you assemble a team to begin to analyze what the opportunity is? Or do you, like, how, how do you do that? Like, like, how do you determine I'm going after this? And then what's the next step? You look at the business. You're like, is this someone who we want to have? Who are they as an organization? You know, you can start thinking about: Do we share the same values? You know, do we know them already? Do we do we already do special orders with them? You know, and if you already do special orders with them, like a one-off basis, it, do we want to have their larger program? Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. And from there, you're like, okay, if it, if it all checks out, you're like, okay, let's take the RFP and look at it. Sometimes you can read it and sometimes you're like, oh yeah, no, you're asking something ridiculous. Mm, Other times okay. what, with the longer ones, you read it in detail and you realize that there might be some pain points that you know you want to sit there and address. So you, by reading by doing that, you're like, oh yeah, that's a pain that seems like a pain point. Sometimes you can kind of understand or see from their writing or their question that they're proposing to you. You're like, oh this might have been an issue in the past. And you try okay. to figure out ways that you could rectify that or correct that moving forward. And maybe it's something you have, maybe it's something you don't have, maybe it's something you're willing to invest in to get that business. Okay. Okay. I get you. Can you give me an example of something that might be a pain point where, where on an RFP you'd see like a question and you're like, Ooh, I, I see that this could be an issue. It could be as simple as the team size or who am I going to be contacting or who am I going to be working with on a day to day some clients prefer to only talk with one person and one okay. person only. Okay. Others are like, I'm cool if there's two or three people. That's fine. They can handle that. Others, yeah, as I was saying, like they just want to talk to one and they're very adamant. And sometimes they'll ask you, you know, what is the team structure? Who will I be working with? You know, so you don't have to pinpoint and say, you're going to be working with this specific person, but it's an account manager. It's a program manager. It's a merchandising manager. It's a this, um, you know, because that way it allows if it's only one person you can build that relationship and slowly win them over and slowly introduce other members of the team to them and get mm. them warm to the idea um okay sometimes they're just not too sure what they want okay okay i get that and prior to to you know embarking upon this entire journey as you read through the rfp you mentioned that there's times where you're going to read through it and will there be times when you say uh, we don't have these capabilities. What they're asking for doesn't compute. That's just not us. And so you walk away. Will will that happen occasionally? It, it, sometimes people can just walk away. Other times people, it might give other op, uh, organizations or distributors a chance to push themselves. Because I always look at an RFP as a a chance to improve on something that you're doing. Oh, I love You don't this. want to always stay doing what you've always been doing. RFPs are out there to push you. And, to make you grow and make you guys make you better 
as how Sabrina, I Sabrina, this is genius. This is genius. I, I really like where we're going with this. So philosophically then, an RFP, even in spite of looking at it and saying, ooh, we don't do this, you might say, we don't do this yet. Yes. So how simple would it be for us or how complex would it be for us to set this capability up that would enable us to actually work on this RFP and perhaps land it? So I love that thinking like that. Yeah. You're right. An RFP challenges you to become better. In yes. fact, any challenge from from a customer, you know, challenges you to look at your business and analyze. Do I add this? Do, is this something I want to think about? Wow, that's a really cool insight. Thanks for for sharing that. Yeah, okay, because so, it's not only do you grow as an organization by submitting your RFP, like you might not get this business, but just think about it. answering all those RFP questions allows you to grow just a little bit more. So the more RFPs you do and maybe not win or win, you learn from each one that you submit. Super cool, super cool insight. Um I'm going to be thinking about that one for a long time because I'm always looking at ways to improve companies and looking at these big opportunities. Maybe you don't even have an intent of landing it, but you're just like, hey, how can I improve my company? That's that's really, really cool. All right, let's keep moving through the RFP process. If you're lucky enough to win an RFP, what happens? Like, is it is it signed in for a specified amount of time? Are there stipulations with regard to what they're going to spend? I mean, you've you've probably invested a lot of time in these RFPs. Actually, that's my next yeah. question. How long does it take to land an RFP? It can take as quick or as you know as long as they want. Really, it, depending on how quickly the you know organization wants to move. Mm-hmm. It all depends, but three months, six months, like the whole process from pitching to going to all the little meetings in between to share, to say, so you submitted your proposal, you know, they'll come back and say, okay, you've been shortlisted. And in those okay. shortlisted, you have to uh, present or do almost like an RFP answering presentation per se, where you yep. go and present, you know, key answers or they'll tell you, I want your presentation to consist of these things. And they might be okay. five, ten. Um, and you go and you, you work on that. So it can be two week turnaround. You work on that. You can either be a team of people. It could be, I know, five people, it could be two people. It could be only a business development person going and presenting to this committee about who you are as an organization and why we want your business. And this is why we should have your business per se. And they might tell you to decorate product or maybe they don't. And maybe you want to bring branded product just to kind of show you, your vast knowledge, I guess, of the business. It, from that, they'll then say, okay, you've been awarded. Great. Okay. Now won the business. Now what's next? Well, do they have inventory already on hand? What does that look like? How much is it worth? Is it obsolete inventory? Does it have old branding? There's all these things you've got to start thinking about before you fully transition to having your full corporate e-store. What is their website going to look like? How much product do we want to carry? What's the team going to be working with? Do we need a customer service? You start figuring that all out and that could take a couple months because you want to sit there and have a conversation and open dialogue between you and the client on what the actual needs are and when it needs to launch. And that's always a great learning um, and a great chance to actually build a really solid relationship with the client. So what you're saying then is there's an integration period after you win an RFP where you do a whole bunch of analysis, uh, much yeah. like a consultant would do. Let's take a 360 yeah. de- degree view of this of this company. 
understand where they're at with their branding right now. As you said, do they have products that are obsolete already? Do they have tons of inventory that I'm going to have to manage? Uh, where am I going to manage that from? How are yeah. our systems going to integrate? So you're looking at all of these things. So then it seems to me then that the team on your side has got to be pretty robust to tackle all these things. Because not only are you tackling tech, but you're tackling a relationship as well. You're tackling inventory from the operations perspective. Uh, there seems to be a whole bunch of areas that you have to integrate with that company in order for the program to be successful, right? A hundred percent. And it's always good to have you know people on the team who know what they're doing in a, in a sense mm-hmm. and then people mm-hmm. you can teach so they know what to do in you know, the next go around type of thing of something else you never want to keep all the information for yourself i always love bringing somebody else along the ride with me to teach them uh because you know it only makes you stronger in the end you know they someone who's looking at it with a fresh set of eyes they ask some crazy questions but no question is ever wrong but it gets you also to think a little bit more Okay. Is it more, is it more of a collaborative process then when you start to get into the product selection selection? Is it, it, do you collaborate with them and understand, you know, Hey, this is what you really want. Or do you make the suggestions and say, this is hot, this is happening. You got to go in this direction. How does that work? And are are, are different corporate programs different? Do you have full autonomy on some programs and then others, it's a little bit more rigid with regard to them sort of calling the shots and telling you, this is what I want. This is what I want. What do you, Different programs differ in in that way. They totally differ. I've had clients say, this is what I want, and we're very adamant. And mm-hmm. I've had others who are looking to you or me as the expert. What do you think I should have in this program? Um, a lot of times they want you to make sure that you're analyzing their data and their information past and present to okay. make sure you're making the right selection. God forbid you put, you know, in, I don't know, like a Zippo. And the client has a strict guidelines of no fire items. Like you have to know them inside and out and be an extension of them to know your requirements and the do's and the don'ts kind of thing. And then use that to win the client over through products. You have to do a lot of active listening. Um, how, how do you do that? How do you get to know the customer so well? Are there, are there tricks? Are there tactics? Do they invite you to events? Do you invite them to events? Like what, what, how, how do you really do that? that? There must be magic there. Oh, it's always magic, you know? Sprinkle yes. some, some magic dust. Um, yeah. Getting to know the client is very crucial. You, one, as I said, active listening. When they're talking, you're listening. Okay. Don't think about coming back with a rebuttal or whatever that they're saying. Because to be honest okay. with you, as a product person, there's someone in the room who's going to come back with a comment. Always. All right. All so right. I, as a product background, I'm always listening to what they're saying. I'm necessary. If the question is not directed to me, I'm always listening. Because you you learn so much more by being in the room and listening to them. Like I had a client once um, who brought us in, and I think we had just won the RFP, and it, I had sourced all these amazing items, and I was like so excited. Yeah. And I sat there, the suitcase in tow, and they're talking, and as they're talking, I'm going, "Oh yeah, that item's not going to work. That item's not going to work." Just by listening to what they were saying, I knew the whole suitcase that I brought was not going to be for them. And in the meeting, wow. someone turned to me on my team and was like, hey, Sabrina, did you have things you wanted to show? And I said, no, no, we're good. I, you know, I have some things back at the office that I want to talk about. And I was approached after the meeting by one of the VPs in the meeting and who was on my team and said, Sabrina, the way that you pivoted in that meeting was, was amazing. Like, they commended me because I was actively listening to the, what their requirements were 
and made a, a decision on the spot that I was not going to show what was in my suitcase because by doing that, by showing what was in my suitcase, it showed that I wasn't listening to their needs or what they wanted. I was yes. just trying to push what I had. And that's yes. not who I, I am as a person. I want to actually listen to them and make sure that we're picking the right items for them. And what the same, a fabulous lesson. You know, it, it's hard. Some people don't want to listen. But at the same time, that same client that we want allowed me and our salesperson to actually travel to an event um, to learn more about their organization. And by doing so, they actually gave us a questionnaire about like, what do you like? Music, food, all these little things. What do you like doing in your spare time? And in one of our breakout sessions, they played music that was on everyone's list. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is amazing. Yeah. And then got back to my room at the end of the day of training. And there was my favorite snack waiting for me. And it was like, wow, they really got down and got to know me. I took that to heart. So that moving forward with that particular client and other clients, I started asking them, you know, preparing for a client presentation, what's your favorite drink? What's your favorite candy? Do you like favorite fruits? Like trying to figure out what they liked and make sure that we had it there. So when they came in for our meeting, it was more relaxed. It wasn't about like what I liked and what I wanted. It was what did they like? What's going to make them feel comfortable in this meeting that's going to be two or three hours? Who knows? But generally speaking, they were so relaxed in our meetings that if we booked a three-hour meeting, it ended up being like an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and we just relaxed and everyone got back time. I love that example. And what a cutting-edge company to invite their partner to a learning event where they get to learn about their company. And so you get to see it from an inside perspective. Yeah. You get to breathe it. And at the same time, they're showing a compassion. They're showing a desire to want to know who you are as well by catering to your needs, actually giving you a survey before the event to understand who you are. What a magnificent relationship. Yeah. Wow. Honestly, and not a lot of clients do that. They, you know, they're like, here's my brand guideline. They're like, take it, leave it and go. Um, it honestly, that was one of my best experiences that I've had working in the promotional products industry. And that opened my eyes to being different when I talk to my clients. Yes. Have you ever flipped the script? Have you ever invited your customer over to your place of business and said, hey, I'm going to immerse you in what we do. I want to show you production. I want to show you inventory. I want to show you and introduce you to the customer service team. Do you ever do that? I never, but I know that sometimes during an RFP stage, they ask for like a facility tour. Oh, okay. okay. So with the facility tour, they've been immersed here, you know, where the merchandisers sit, the people who sourced your programs, this is our warehouse walkthrough, you know, this is where accountants, they, they do do that and they'll come in and kind of get a feel of the hustle and bustle inside organizations. Um, but it's never like, here, here's a deep inversion of like who we are as an organization. Maybe sometimes they are, but the ones I've been in, it's never really been that deep. Okay. Okay. So if I'm a distributor, one of the questions I would ask you, and I would be dying to find out is how difficult is this going to be for me from an inventory perspective? So once we start building a corporate program, do you inventory things in your office? How does that look? And what type of space requirement do you need? And how heavy do you have to go? How much are you investing up front? Or, or do they pay up front for some of the, the items? Like, what does that look like from an inventory perspective? I think it all depends on what they've agreed upon in their RFP and how they want to manage it, whether it's client-owned okay. inventory, whether it's 
Uh, you know, it's all on the distributor to pay for the goods. And then as they sell, that's kind of how they recoup. You know, yep. if they decide to leave, do they have to do a buyback? I think it all depends on what's definitely been agreed upon in the agreement. But I think for a distributor to be successful, they have to truly understand and manage their inventory. And I, yes. you need to have the right person who understands inventory. I always felt someone who has like a buying or retail background who understands turns and like um, when to reorder, like all those different reorder points and all this stuff because promotional products in in essence is like a little retail store. So each one of our clients, e-stores or websites are a little e-commerce site that's out there in the world. Right. So little Amazon's little, you know, Hudson Bay company, e-stores, HBCs, the Bay's, like that's what they all are essentially. And they all in some essence are going to be managed almost the same similarly to one of those sites. And someone who has that type of background will understand the flow of going in and out. But at the same time, if you've had two of or like programs, you can now start looking at both of them to see if there's similarities to help you better make decisions for one over the other and see if that makes sense for inventory. I see. I see. And I I think this is a really educational moment, actually, to consider corporate programs as little retail stores. And some of them are enormous. I I get that. I I hear some programs are millions of dollars of, of transactions per year. But that's a really refreshing way of looking at it. And then you just said something even more interesting in the sense that, you know, you can now take a look at like companies that you have. If you're running two, three, four, five different corporate programs, you're taking experience and probably systems and leveraging those systems and leveraging that experience against uh, what already exists. And, you know, it, it, it reminds me of, say, the, the distinction between The Gap and Banana Republic, who I believe are owned by the same yeah. company, right? So they have different retail stores, but the philosophies are a little bit different, or the quality of the clothing is a, diff- a little bit different, or their target market's a bit different. So would you say then that when it comes to corporate programs, that's the type of philosophy one has to have? I'm going to build a, a retail store here, but I know that they're going to be different, but elements will be the same. A hundred percent. So going to your, your example of the Gap. So you have Banana Republic, Gap, Old Navy. Three different tiers. Oh, that's right. I forgot Old Navy. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. Especially yeah. three different tiers of business. So when you look out there in the world, you can technically use kind of like that modeling in the corporate world and say you have three different tiers. You have the one that's Banana Republic who's going to give everything to, all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Yep. And you have Gap who's you know, a little bit watered down. And then Old Navy that kind of just has Almost no frills, right? Yes, exactly. Like a basic store kind of thing. And clients these days are looking to say, what do you offer? And you have to remember why I said they're like little retail stores. Because they're shopping online. We're we're in a pandemic. How many people are actually going to the mall? Now, a lot of people are going online and using Amazon, Gap, um, I don't know, any new like mom and pop um, store that's uh, launched. There's been like a women's clothing line, like We're Frank. All those people are going to these websites to purchase products. So what's that experience like? How is their user experience? How are they being able to shop from start to finish? Um, How is the package arriving? All that, those people are looking at going, oh, this is amazing. When you order something online from like a small mom and pop, they put so much heart and soul into that good when it arrives to your house. Like it's a pretty package. 
Yes. So sometimes you might want to translate that into a corporate store. You might not want to spend a whole bunch of money, but for the one that's the banana republic, you might want yep. to go a little bit of extra, you know, and you've got to start thinking about that when you're doing these corporate programs. And sometimes people forget. So, Sabrina, how do these programs become profitable for everybody? Obviously, on your customer's side, you're delivering beautiful branding through promotional products and promotional apparel, and this is uh, expanding the brand, expanding their opportunities. But for you, you must deal with a variety of different types of orders, all with an aim to continue to be profitable. And what I mean by that is you're fulfilling one unit order sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. So someone needs this for a new employee that just started. And you're like, okay, no problem. So now the shipper's got to pull it from the inventory, put it in a box, tape it all up, put it out. That's a lot of time for like yeah. one kit, right? So do you like when a corporate, when you have a corporate program, you must have inventory and you must have, I'm assuming special orders or something, right? Yes. And is this one of the ways that you can maintain some semblance of profitability is by, you know, landing these home run orders? Like, do, do you have a, a, a decent mix of like inventory and special order? What does that look like? And, and what's the split? Special order is definitely going to be the higher split. I always find like sometimes firms is the, um, the you know the ugly duckling or you know the, the stepsister because it's sometimes just there to help keep the business going but in some okay. cases you might just have a program and you can they'll probably want to run special orders through the website so they want to funnel all funds through their e-store so you can start using your e-store um with special um order opportunities okay there's nothing saying you can't do like a per uh, order now ship later that's still a special order and for yes. higher volumes and going through the e-store. So there's always different ways that you can manage that. But yeah, generally okay. speaking, programs sometimes can be a loss, sometimes not. It also depends on what you're agreed upon, you know, in your RP. You maybe you talk about margins or dollars and whatever else because everyone needs to make money somehow. So yeah. everybody needs to be profitable. Let's get and into that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get, let's get into that. So when you negotiate an RFP, are they typically based on a set margin or is it, have you ever seen a cost plus scenario where it's like, tell you what, like you got to show me your invoice from your supplier and we'll give you X percent more. Like how does, how does that work? And, and do profit margins differ on inventoried items versus special order items? How does that look? I think anything is possible. In an RP, okay. it all depends on what someone wants and how okay. what a distributor is willing to give up in order to get yep. business or vice versa. Um, I think you can always agree upon a margin if you wanted to, or you could just say, here, we'll do the business and that's it. But I've seen agreed upon margins. I've seen cost plus options. I've seen, you know what, you win the business because you have to answer questions and some of them might be, what's your pricing on these five different items so they compare mm-hmm. you to other people. Oh, and sometimes what they'll do is hold you to those five items in the RFP and those items have to be that price from the RFP. So those might be your lost leaders. And okay. then everything else that you source, you might make a better you know, margin on per se, but it all depends on how you want to go about um, servicing the business. Special orders will always be better in a margin because you don't have to stock it in the warehouse. You're not paying like an you know, inventory you know, space. E-carrying costs, yep. 
there's no like obsolete inventory money that you have to worry about because mm-hmm. special orders in and it's out. In and it's out. So if you run okay. those through your website, it's easy because you everything's already there. Um, all the systems kind of are already built in a way. So put them up here, order these five items now, get them while you can, they'll ship X date in and out, mm-hmm. in and mm-hmm. out. Um, and it allows you to drop ship if you need. So presumably there is a lot of investment on your side in order to win and to execute upon a corporate program. And I'm talking about uh, investment in people, investment in payroll, obviously, uh, space and warehouse, uh, in uh, IT infrastructure. Is there is there some kind of caveat in the contract that 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 allows you to make uh, a, a a floor level revenue? Like do, do do does in the contract will your customers say we will spend a minimum of a half a million this year? Uh, does does that kind of thing exist or or like how do you, how do you know that that hey look I'm gonna or do you just are you just praying that yeah, I'm gonna invest all this time and I hope it comes back? Like what what is it what the contracts look like? Clients will always say my program is worth X, but once oh, okay. you see, so you have an idea. Okay. Yeah, but once they start sending you like all the paperwork and numbers from like you know how their programs in the past, you start to uncover you're like, hmm, I don't know if it's worth X per se. So you uh, might want to go back and negotiate uh, how much inventory um, that you want to carry. I have like a math thing that I've learned over the years and what I do to kind of identify if a program says they're going to make X, what does X look like? and actual items on the shelf. So I have this whole calculation that I do to figure out if it's, go- if it's going to make sense and present that back to a client and say, hey, for this amount, I'm willing to carry this amount on the shelf. Is that good with you? Yes or no? And sometimes they'll agree, sometimes they won't. But you know, it's something that you always want to keep in mind. But at the same time, you want to make sure you're refreshing that inventory or, or looking to add new items to the site. So sometimes if you're saying your site's going to have 30 items, maybe you don't put all 30 on the website in one shot. Maybe okay. you do 20, maybe you do 25. And that allows you, you know, that five to 10 wiggle room to discontinue, add something new, maybe add something for spring, summer, maybe do something for golf. It, it gives you that wiggle room to make your site always look like it's fresh or new. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. What do you do about uh, products that are dogs? Like, meaning, like they're just not selling. Do you, do you ever come up with that? Where it's like, oh yeah, like you, you know, you worked with a customer. It's like we picked these three. We think they're going to be amazing. And out of those three SKUs, like two of them, just like nothing happened. Oh, hundred percent. Because there's always a time that clients like, I want this item. They're so adamant that they want a particular item, and okay. it sells like two. Okay, like a fidget spinner or something. Yeah, and you're like, oh, my word. So then it, it's important. It's so imperative that if that happens, you start, you discount, discount it and try to push it out at a okay. discounted price. Okay. Because if you leave it there at a regular price, it's not going to move. T- the client's people are telling you, we don't want this item. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if you don't want it, mm-hmm. what do we do? Clear it out. Yes. Happens. Yes. You go to a grocery store. Things go on sale all the time, but they're making room for a new product. 
And you must have to get creative with those, those items, right? So here you are with a warehouse full of X and you're like, okay, okay, okay. You guys got a golf tournament coming up this summer. We could include this with one of the gifts in the golf tournament. Okay. That'll get rid of uh, 144 units of what we have in the shelves right now. So I suppose you could do something like that. Okay. hundred percent. Because when you look at that obsolete inventory, if it's 10 items, you sit there and talk to a client. Look, this is what we have at obsolete. This is what I want to do of my plan. But at the same time, as a salesperson, if you are so involved with them and know their outer little nuances, you can sell that obsolete inventory to different branches of the organization to help get rid of it as a special yes. order person. Like you yes. guys have to be so intertwined and understand the program business to help alleviate that. Because sometimes stale inventory sticks there. You have to get creative in order to get rid of it because it's not okay. going to be great for either party. And so in some cases, you're taking a hit on the program. You're not going to make money because you just want it gone. But yes, at the same absolutely. Time, you're making room for other things to help make that program. Do you ever see buyback clauses for the end of the program, for the end of the life of the program? Like what if you're stuck with a warehouse full of stuff? Does that get transitioned to the next person who wins the RFP or (laughs) do they, do they have to buy it or what does that look like? Or is there any protection for you, the distributor? I think it all depends again on who that client is. Some clients will say, you know what? I want to start fresh. I don't want you to touch this. Sometimes they'll say, you know what? There's some items in this. I've gone through and analyzed this data. This is what makes sense. Sometimes they said, take it all. I don't, you guys figure it out. But it all, you have to sit down and actually have a conversation with them and actually look at it. Does this make sense? You have two of these. This doesn't make sense for me to carry it into stock. Why don't you guys take that and, you know, distribute it amongst two people? You know, you have five of this. You start looking, you have to look down at what is there and units to see if it's actually going to make sense to sell moving forward. Not just okay. looking at it as a whole and being like, oh, you have a hundred thousand dollars worth of product. Great. We'll take it all. Well, did you look at it? Cause maybe it's one. <laughs> right. Right. You okay. don't want ones of something. You want something that you can actually have small, medium, large, extra large. You want a full, you know, inventory, 144, 70, something that's actually going to make sense. Gotcha. How, how entrenched do you get with regard to a customer's marketing calendar? Do you work with their marketing calendars? I, I would assume that the relationship is such that when you have a corporate program with somebody, you, you must look at the big picture. And so how far ahead are you planning when it comes to corporate programs? You have to be it's so involved. I always like to think that we're, as a distributor, you're an extension of them. So you okay. have to know what's going on. And so you do have to have a marketing calendar and pick initiatives that you're, you're going to want to support or different things that they have that's going on. So for instance, if you sat down and said, okay, there's six different things you guys are doing this year. Let's plan for those six. So one starts in March, you might've started talking about it in December, maybe November to make sure that you have inventory, making sure you know you have all the little requirements that you needed to make sure that they have things that are delivering for March. Maybe had to be something best from overseas. Who knows? But you want to make sure that within the first year, you're trying a couple of different things. I use the first year of winning a program as a trying year. Oh, okay. Um, and the first three to six months, you know, when you have items or product programs, you can kind of see how things are going to work. If you have a golf program booking and it takes off, wow, you know you're going to do golf again the following year. If you do like a summer fun booking and it flops, well, you're not going to do a summer fun the following year. Because it didn't yes. do well the first year. Yes. Unless the following year, they actually have some big summer initiatives that you want to make sure that you're tying into, then that's different. 
uh, then you might want to try it again. But you have you want to make sure what you're doing on the site reflects back to the organization so there's a tie-in. Okay. And is it a, an absolute bonanza when a customer says we're rebranding? Like, do, do you just, uh, do, you, do you just say, oh, hallelujah? Or you're kind of like being like, oh gosh, it is a lot of work, Alex, when someone rebrands. Like, is this, because to me, it would be the holy grail. It'd be like, oh, you're rebranding? Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> so how does that look? Like, do you ever have that where someone rebrands midstream yes, in a corporate program? You could totally have that. And sometimes in, you have to have that in your agreement because there could be a clause that said, if the client does a branding change, they might be responsible responsible for all the existing inventory to take. Ooh, okay. It could be it could be something that's in there, the clause. Or it could be, well, for rebranding, we want to sell out of this current inventory before you put the new logo on an item on the site. So they can possibly keep the same item, they're just changing the logo. So you yes. then you have to be really close to the inventory and manage it to make sure there's no like um no mix ups. So you don't want to send out a whole shipment of, you know, 10 and the person needed 11 and you do the 11th one of the new logo and you're like, why does this one look odd? You know, so you have to properly manage the inventory transition, which is, can, can be hard. Okay. Okay. I see. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that would be, there'd be a lot of moving pieces when you yes. get into a rebrand, right? Yes. Which would be incredible. What do you do with a national program? Like I'm, I'm assuming you've run programs that go coast to coast and probably inter-country. What do you do with regard to servicing that program? Do you have staff that stays on longer hours to accommodate West coast versus East coast? What does that look like in terms of access and, and, and how picky are, are your customers with regard to, you know, the, the amount of, of accessibility you offer them? I think it depends on where your client is located sometimes. Sometimes if they're located in Vancouver, they want you available. So you okay. have to adjust. But generally speaking, I think if you're going to offer services from coast to coast, you want to make sure you're available within those hours to help manage. Yes. Um, so maybe it's starting at 7 or 7.30 and maybe someone stays till like 6 to kind of cover off across Canada. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. It, gotcha. It could be a little bit later. It all just depends. You might want to stagger people coming in so that, you know, when someone's on break, there's still someone there to cover and it staggers throughout the day for support. Okay. And then I, I, I'm always a big fan of using analytics to, uh, you know, determine probabilities. Do you analyze your own analytics throughout the life of a corporate program to understand cool. this trends in the summer, this happened in a previous year, um, we saw this in another company that's similar, and we think this will work well? Like, how in-depth do you get analytically? A hundred percent. I think the one thing that I always love, I don't know why, Every time I did like a booking or a pre-booking of any sort from one year to the next, I literally on my desktop would have like a little chart or a little Excel document of all the different bookings by year that I did. And okay. so if I did a golf one year, I knew what I sold, the quantities that sold, uh, the vendor minimum and uh, the dollar value. And so I knew for the following year, I could literally pull up that list and be like, okay, what did I do? Yeah, makes sense. That's what I want to have. And I always knew that with the clients. This is what we did last year. You know, this is what we want to do this year type of thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, totally get it. Or they're like, what did we do last year? I'm like, I got you. So I always became that person who I always had the answer because I always had it in front of me. I Amazing. always made sure that I, that information was readily available for me, whether or not I had some type of information or pulling a report from our system to help me um, analyze that information. Because that information is so invaluable for you to make the right decisions for the program, whether it is a stock program. Or you're going to do a booking program or a booking uh, for like a golf event. 
it is imperative that you understand what's selling and what's not selling to make sure you make the best decisions for yourself and the client moving forward. And when you start showing that data to the client, they're becoming, uh, not becoming trusted, but they're trusting you more as the time goes on because you're showing them real data that's going to make sense. And it's not coming from a, I think we need to have this to a, Mm -hmm. I reviewed the numbers and we make sense to add this item or I reviewed the numbers and it doesn't make sense to have this item. And here's why. And once they can see that and truly understand that, uh, you've won. You know, you know what what really rings through to me today is that the level of care that you must put into a corporate program. And so as you've been answering these questions, I just keep on thinking to myself, when Sabrina takes on a corporate program, she becomes an employee of her customer. Really, like you you must think like one. You must enter their their ecosphere. You must understand their brand, their intent, their projects, their people, their customers, right? And the more of it you understand, the better you are to be able to fulfill their needs with promotional products and apparel, correct? Correct. And the more you can not be friends with them but understand them, um, be friendly with them. I'm not telling you to go out and have drinks with them on a weekend or a Friday night. It's understanding who they are and their needs on a daily basis. That becomes imperative to how you can manage their program. Like I've yes. had a client by, you know, walking, by showing her one thing, she asked for something and it was a wildest dream. We didn't go forward and execute it, but she had this wild dream of wanting something. And, um, I decided to take that and work with our creative person and kind of design it and develop some options for her to look at. And I almost brought her to tears because it was like, you were listening. I didn't realize that someone was listening and, you know, wanted to get this done. And it's like those little things that stick out to a client. It's like this person's willing to go the extra mile for me. And it's not something that we might go forward with. It's just an idea. You know, and I'm fine with spending 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe an hour on an idea to make them feel and understand that I'm caring and I'm listening. I always put my blood, sweat and tears in everything that I do. And anyone who knows me, I am like, I go full on. You need it. You want it. I will try to figure it out and get it for you. And if I can't, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I will let you know if a supplier is out of stock of something, I'll try to find you another option. If I can't, here's why. And I will honestly always try to be honest with you. And I think honesty is always the best policy. Don't lie um, to a client. And the other day, I actually saw someone who said, for us distributors in this realm, someone was saying they've lost another client to you know another company. Um, like it was like four imprint because four imprint is all about cost, and it's very important for distributors to understand if you're losing on cost, that's not the right client for you. You want to make mm-hmm. sure that you're working with clients who understand your value and what you bring to the table. Not about they're not going to nickel and dime you. You know, that's the clients that you want, and those are the ones you want on program. Yeah, I, I, I'm so grateful for this conversation we're having here. And I think that our audience is going to be equally as grateful. What I'm what really is coming through the most here is, is just your level of care. And I think that if we translate anything to our audience here, if you're thinking about doing a corporate program, you're obviously going to need uh, professional wherewithal. You're going to need... Um, you know, just the knowledge, the understanding, but you're going to need a team that cares. And that, that, that really shines through with you, Sabrina. I I love the way you put thought into what you're doing. I love the way you listen and absorb 
everything about the customer so that you can give back in their image in a way that reflects your experience and reflects your knowledge, your own knowledge. And I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. Now, the purpose of this episode was obviously to, in a general sense, you know, explain what a corporate program is, explain some of the nuances and aspects of corporate program. And I hope that we've accomplished that. Nevertheless, your expertise runs so much deeper than what we've just discussed. I mean, I didn't want to get into anything proprietary. I really respect the companies that you've worked for. And I, I just feel that um, th there's more to be gained from distributors that want to talk with you, I believe. Yeah. And so I, I've, you know, obviously in preparation for this 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 episode, I've done my research and 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 looked at what you're doing. And these days, you call yourself a branding expert and you offer consultation and help to people that are building their promotional programs, right? Is, is this something you're doing? Yes, I've started it out. It's something that I'm very passionate about. As you can see, like I put my blood, sweat and tears into it. And I want to make sure that other distributors understand the value that we bring to clients to offer them that mm -hmm. same service. Magnificent. Well, I want to invite people to work with you because I, I am a fan of yours. I, I truly am. I, I respect the way you do business. I respect the way you think. You have tremendous knowledge, excellent experience. You're very, very wise. How can our friends that are listening right now get a hold of you if they wanted to engage you as a consultant and take advantage of your knowledge and share that and talk to you about their own experiences, about you know their thoughts on, on building corporate programs? How do they to hold you i think the best thing is to go to my linkedin page so look up sabrina harding you'll find me if you can't find me go to alex's page and then look to his uh, connections and you'll find me that way and just shoot me a message i am always on linkedin my phone is always in my hand or nearby that i'm willing to you know, message back and set up a call whether it's a, a zoom call or just a quick chat on the phone old style, old school style and have a conversation i'm willing to have that and then we can go from there to see what services or support that you might need from me. Beautiful, beautiful. So everyone has that now. Sabrina Harding through LinkedIn, H-A-R-D-I-N-G, Sabrina, S-A-B-R-I-N-A. And uh, like she said, if you can't find her because you're two degrees removed, you know how that works in LinkedIn, yep. like a second connection, third connection, <laughs> you can always look me up, Alex Morin, and uh, send me a message and I will gladly connect you with my friend Sabrina here. Uh, Sabrina, is there anything else that we should touch on? Is there anything where you're like, Alex, you didn't ask me about this and it's imperative people know about it. Is there anything before we say bye to everybody that I absolutely needed to touch on? I think the only thing that we have left is, you know, you have to make sure you have the right team involved working on your program. Ah, yes. Um, okay. The team structure is very important. I know we touched on it briefly, a client wanting connection to one person, but that one person doesn't do it all. Um, they still need people internally to help support and execute everything on a daily basis. So you need to make sure you have the right person who understands the program side of business, specifically just that. You need to have someone who understands specifically just a special order side of the business. And then someone, you know, an operations person, and then you have your customer service and your inventory because all those people are going to make your program successful. And you have to mm -hmm. change your way of thinking when you look at um, a team to manage a program business because not, uh, not necessarily the team that you have in-house might be the best. It might be good to look at outside and look for people who have a retail background because they have Ooh, that understanding of what... And, e-commerce site or working a retailer actually needs 
And if they can do that in the retail world, just imagine what support and what experiences they can bring to a corporate store. You know, with that, the sky's the limit. Those people have a different idea and a different eye on how to manage things. And those people are imperative and they can help your program business soar. Mm-mm, I love that. And that's really hiring to levels of expertise, right? And yeah. I think you make a, a terrific point there. I once heard a story about a company in our industry that was wanting to revamp their pricing. And you know what they did? They actually didn't seek somebody from inside the industry to help them with their pricing. They actually sought an expert from the airline industry. And you know the reason why they did that? is because if you think about it, airline prices change almost hourly and Mm -hmm. daily, right? And they go across so many different platforms like Travelocity or Expedia or the carrier's own particular site. And so hiring somebody with that technical experience, that absolute knowledge of pricing really helped this company vault forward. So I always found that a really interesting case study. And of course, uh, before we rock and roll, one of the other things that we didn't touch on, and it's okay, there's, I mean, I I want people to have lots more questions for you, (laughs) is the relationship that you have to have with your suppliers, right? When you're, when you're purchasing products for your stores, um, you know, there, there, there's all kinds of nuances involved in that relationship from, uh, you know, pricing agreements to volume rebates that might exist to advantages that you're going to negotiate with your supplier when it comes to lead times because you're doing repeat orders all the time to lower minimums to, you know, it just the list goes on and on and on. I, I would imagine that that relationship must be vitally important. Yes, it is, because, you know, they're going to as you are an extension of your client, the, uh, the vendor is an extension of you. Yes. Um, and if they have what you need and they're able to, you know, jump through hoops, they make you look good, but then in turn, you know, clients extremely happy about and the client thinking it was you all the time, which really all you do is take a phone and talk to your connection and say, Hey, this is a situation. Those are imperative to running a successful program. I had one distributor, I'm sorry, distributor, one vendor. I ordered something for a presentation that was delayed. And they drove to go pick it up from the facility, wherever it was, and <laughs> hand deliver it for me to make sure that I had it for my meeting the next day. They didn't have to. They could have said, well, you know what? That's it. Sorry. It's the latest delay. Like, I can't help you there. And it's going that extra mile. As we as distributors are going the extra mile for our clients, our vendors will do the same thing for us. If you treat them with respect, kind, kindness, and just dignity, that goes a long way. When you talk about my heart, in this and how I treat my client, always thinking about them. It's the same thing with the vendors. I will never, you know, talk down to them. And I don't think anyone should. The relationship is so imperative, just like any other relationship in your life. When you meet someone, they're going to be there for you. They don't have to like mm-hmm. you, but yes. as long as you're genuine, they will always be there to support you and, you know, help you reach your goals. And that's important. Absolutely. And and it's such a good point, the supplier distributor relationship. And I love the parallels you made between, you know, your your relationship on both sides of the equation and what each does for for one another. Sabrina, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your knowledge, share your expertise, and share your compassion and your humanity with us. I I really, really learned a lot off of this interview. And I want to thank you for that. I hope that people did as well that, that are listening. I hope so too. And thank you so much for having me. I, I honestly, it's my passion always has been. I wish I you know, listened to that gut so many more years ago, but I'm happy that I'm here now. 
Well, you're you're a success. You have been a success as long as I know you, as, as I've known you. And I know that this new incarnation of you and the expertise that you have is going to pan out and benefit a lot of people, including yourself. And I think that's when everybody wins. That's the magic, right? Like that's the way we, we, we go through the world is, is just everybody's giving and receiving, right? 100%. Sabrina, thank you again. I'm so grateful. I wish you an unbelievable rest of the day. We've told everybody how to get a hold of you. Sabrina Harding through LinkedIn is the best way. And I'm going to wish you a wonderful, wonderful day. And we will talk soon, my friend. Thank you so much, Alex. Take care. All right. Coolio. Bye.